This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Good afternoon and good evening. It is the Matt McNeil Show coming to you live on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk and NEM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Howdy, hi. Good to be with you today. Matt and Patrick here in uh, your hour. Uh, I hope you had a good one out there today. 952-946-6205. is the phone number. Uh, as uh, it just... We're going to get to what John, Speaker Johnson said. I'm going to get to that here in just a little bit. Patrick, how are you today, my friend? Actually doing pretty well. Woke up to a nice coating of snow on the sidewalk. Uh, we, we've been lucky here in the Twin Cities. Everything's going south of us. It sucks to be Iowa. Well, yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's all going south of us here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just yo, keep in mind, it's, that, it's the holiday season indeed. So, yeah, I, I, I did appreciate how everyone drove like eight miles an hour. You know, it's, of course, by the end of the winter, you know, it's a Fast and Furious movie on the highways. But, you know, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. So, again, this is our debut week in Chicago. Once again, Chicago, howdy. Good to be with you today. I want to share with you at the beginning of this hour why you guys actually are near and dear to my heart. And it had to do with something that happened uh, a little more than a year ago. Now, just a little background information on me. I am, um, uh, I've, got a, I've got three kids. My oldest is my son, and he is a senior at the University of Minnesota right now. And, uh, of course, his first year was the, the COVID year. He, you know, he, he started at 2020. And, yeah, that was, that was tough. That was tough. Uh, pretty much all your classes, the first semester for sure, were all online and you know, it was it was a very different college experience than most of us who ever went to college ever had. And he got through it, and he, you know he he was he, he did pretty well uh, as best as could be under those circumstances. He did in one of his online classes see a girl and became kind of smitten right away. Little did he know that apparently she saw him. And was kind of smitten too. Now, I mean, to say that he's fighting out of his weight class, guys, you know what I'm talking about, man. Yeah, yeah, no, dude, man. What's the old line from uh, from Arrested Development? <laughs> you got to be careful. You got to make sure. Yeah, don't don't screw that up, man. You, you, you don't you don't screw that up. She's an absolute delight. She is an absolute delight. And um, due to Earlier, a few years earlier, a year earlier, we ended up having to spend a lot of the holidays with her because she had a COVID outbreak at her family's house and um, in the Chicago area. 
And so she stayed up uh, and uh, you know in the, in the Twin Cities and ended up having the holidays with us and it was fairly nice. And she was just so excited about taking my son uh, down to the Chicago area and showing him all of the Chicago that she grew up with and how much the Chicago she loved. And so she took him down there for the 4th of July in 2022 in Highland Park. I was at a 4th of July parade myself. As a matter of fact, I had just seen Dean Phillips. Yes, that Dean Phillips. The guy that's running for against Biden. <laughs> okay, you get you can do it. It's you want to do it. Knock yourself out, but uh, I I don't know if uh, I don't know how it's going to go for you, but sure, you can do it. I had just seen Dean Phillips, my phone rang. And it was my son. And he says, Dad? I said, yeah, there was a shooting. I want to let you know before you see it all in the media, we're okay. We got away. We're okay. Click. Now, once again, this is at a 4th of July parade. I'm like, what the F? So I immediately start scrambling and I see the news stories start to pop up of the mass shooting at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park. And it was gut-wrenching to say the least. You know, this is, this is, there's a reason why Generation Z today is tired of our crap. And they look at this because this, this guns everywhere, gun slaughters everywhere world that we have, which is a, 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 a self-gratifying dream of the gun industry so that, that nothing can ever be done. So the only thing you can say is you better buy your own gun because we're going to have at least we're going to leash the psychopaths with as many guns and as much ammo as they want. So that's the only option you got. And Generation Z, I have zero doubts going to change a lot of this. Probably rewrite the, the Second Amendment as it is. I, I think that will probably happen at some point. That being said, it was, it was hard to be in this world, this modern world we have where, and I am just like many other parents, many other family members, having a loved one who is someplace where there was reports of gunfire. Reports of casualties, reports of, of, of a slaughter. And not only did my son's girlfriend's family who were, were with him and stepped up and let him know they were, he was safe, let us know he was safe, all these things, uh, that, that they were there. The entire, I, I, I talked about this on the air, and the amount of outreach I got from the beautiful, beautiful people of Chicago who stepped up and said, you know, you know, don't worry. We, you know, we, we, you know, if there's anything you need from me, let me know. If your son needs anything, let me know. I can't say thank you enough. I mean, you know, Chicago is, you're good people. And, and I can't, I can't, like I said, I can't say thank you enough on that because that was, that was hard. Um, they're still together. They're still together, which is good. I, I don't know where they're going to go. They get both graduate this year, so we'll have to see. But uh, it's, it's a good reminder that uh, these upper Midwest values, they're, they're pretty hard to beat. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Oh, oh, hark. 
Uh, do, do we have that audio from the Speaker of the House? This is Speaker Johnson. Hey, you know, um, I, I don't want to call you a traitor to the country, you jackass, but uh, here is a little audio clip from Speaker Johnson in regards to the January 6th insurrectionists who tried their best to overthrow the government of the United States. Something, by the way, we now know definitively was the plan due to Liz Cheney on the Rachel Maddow, who was saying that in the days before the January 6th event, the, the Trump's lawyers, Trump's campaign's lawyers, were out there selling talking points in advance to tell people how they wanted it presented as they tried to overthrow the government. We know this was the whole plan. We know the whole thing was going on. This was an attempt to overthrow a legitimate election Speaker uh, Johnson has been, of course, on the front of this, the, the tip of this idea of sharing the video from the January 6th insurrectionists. And so in, they're trying to share this out. Of course, once again, they cherry picked the initial evidence, which they handed to only right wing news outlets to basically drive a specific narrative. And now everyone wants to see the rest of it. And a lot of people have said, well, why don't you want to release the rest of it? If you release part of it, why don't you want to release the rest of it? And the reason why is that they don't want to release it is because it shows exactly who they were, what they were all about. But Johnson, Speaker Johnson, takes a very, very interesting approach to this. Trust the American people to draw their own conclusions. We should not, they should not be dictated by some narrative and accept that as fact. So they can review the tapes themselves. Uh, we're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because what? we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other uh, you know, concerns and problems. So uh, that's a slow process to get it done. We're working steadily on it. We've hired additional personnel to do that. And uh, all of those tapes ultimately at the end will, will be out so everybody can see them and draw their own conclusion. Let me go. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what was that? Blurring them out so they can't be prosecuted, you say? House Speaker Mike Johnson said Tuesday that Republicans are blurring faces in the security footage from inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, to protect the rioters from prosecution. I'm going to take a quick stop here. And what do you think Mike Johnson would be like if this was footage from Minneapolis and the George Floyd riots after 2020? You, you think Johnson was like, hey, you know what? Before we release all this video footage, let's make sure we blot out people's faces so no one can retaliate against them. You think he'd be like that with that? No, no, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. And that was not an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. That was that was a a, a, a an implosion of society in Minneapolis after Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd at 38th in Chicago in Minneapolis. And the, the African-American community and the, the minority communities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, who have been screaming for years, this is how the Minneapolis police treats us. Finally, when there was un, the deniable proof, the city imploded, and that's what happened. But I don't think Mike Johnson is going to be sitting there saying, you know what, we need to make sure all those people in, 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 in George Floyd stuff, we, we need to make sure their faces are covered up. Uh, no, he's not. And yet here he is with this. All right. We have to blur some of the faces of persons who participated in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against to be charged by the DOJ, Johnson said at a press conference. <clears throat> the Department of Justice has long had access to the footage, so they know it's in there. 
uh, and has used it to roughly uh, some of the roughly 1,200 criminal charges against people linked to the riot, such as uh, saw the participants fight police and storm the Capitol. Johnson's comment is a remarkable statement of sympathy for supporters of then-President uh, Trump, who illegally entered the restricted federal building as part of a violent attack on Congress. Thoreau prosecutors already have the video. Blurring people's faces could prevent amateur investigators from sending tips to the FBI. Of course that's what this is all about. Online sleuths have previously used social media and facial recognition software to help the government crack down on the number of suspects. Shortly after becoming speaker in October, Johnson announced that Republicans would release thousands, thousands of hours of footage from security image, uh, uh, cameras fulfilling a pledge he made to the far-right flank of the House GOP conference. The video has previously been available to criminal defendants and reporters by request. Johnson initially said the footage will allow people to see themselves what happened that day so that the public would ha- not only have to rely on the interpretation of a small group of government officials as, uh, as though Trump supporters had not really ransacked the building as part of an effort to undo his 2020 loss. Conspiracy theorists and some Republican lawmakers have pointed to video snippets that evidence that it was actually the Justice Department that orchestrated the riot. Several lawmakers claim the video showed a Trump supporter flashing a badge at Capitol Police officers, for instance. Unfortunately, for your irrefutable proof, uh, we should note that that was actually a vape device. He was vaping. That was the badge he showed, which for, for MAGA people, I have zero doubt. I have zero doubt, man. Yeah, he's vaping. He's one of us. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> wait a second here. Wait a second. I thought all the Republicans were insisting this was Antifa. I don't think, why is Mike Johnson trying to blur out the Antifa faces? Oh, that's right. They pulled that one out of their caboose as well. We'll take a break. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It's the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Back to uh, Johnny Trees and himself there, Mike Johnson. Uh, the, uh, uh, the speaker of the house. Once again, I want to repeat what he said here. We have to blur some of the faces of persons who participated in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and to be charged by the DOJ. Now it would be one thing if he came out and he said, and by the way, he himself and others have implied strongly, this wasn't Trump supporters. These were people in disguise. So once again, now we have an admission of, oh, it really was Trump supporters and now we have to protect them. But it's not like that, uh, you know, you know the, the Louisiana Bayou here is sitting and making the argument that, okay, so there were people who were there who never went into the building. We don't have any evidence of them being in the building. So we're going to blur their faces because we don't want people retaliating against them. That's not what he's saying. He is saying specifically people that have committed crimes that the Department of Justice, this is the Speaker of the House coming on out and insisting that they are going to fight for people who broke the law and prevent them from being charged, anything in their power to prevent them from being charged with the crimes they committed. Wow, that is that is an interesting stance to take, I think. For the Speaker of the House, 
I mean, how is this not, you know, basically some sort, you know, violating, you know, the the prosecutorial prosecutorial um, neutrality of the de- uh, the Department of Justice that they basically they see someone in there who undeniably went into the Capitol, went in there and you know wiped their feces all over the building, and that's about the best thing they could do. They they went and violated, broke into offices, damaged equipment. You know, wanted to hang the vice president. I mean, if you're Mike Pence, if you're Mike Pence, how does this sit with you? That the Speaker of the House is saying, hey, all these people that are chanting to kill you, you know what? We're going to make sure that they get a little safety and security tonight, okay? All right. Uh, I, I find it to be infuriating because, for the record here, as a veteran of the U.S. Army, these people can burn in hell. Ashley Babbitt is a traitor to America. She's a traitor to America. That's all she is. She's a traitor to America. She tried to overthrow a legitimate election that the president, former president of the United States was having a temper tantrum about losing because he's a petulant man-child who never had decent parents to tell him, no, you can't have the candy bar. And so he grew up his entire life being trying to manipulate and, 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 and twist his way into getting his way. And all of a sudden, he came up against an immovable force. He got his ass handed to him by Joe Biden. He lost. He lost. Fair and square. And hundreds of cases that have been brought to courts about trying to prove that there was fraud. They're over. They they haven't gotten a freaking win. Not a single one. And almost every one of those cases between the election and January 6th, almost every one of those cases, the the exact argument of the pro-Trump group was, well, I know we don't have any evidence, but give us six weeks in private with the voting machines and we'll find the evidence. For God's sakes, even in the one state where they were able to basically do this out in Arizona, with, with the, 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 the cyber ninjas, whatever they were, that went in there. Even they came on out and said there was no evidence of fraud. And, oh, by the way, Biden actually won by a larger margin. They can't, they just, this was a bunch of people having a temper tantrum that wanted, that are just, they're, they're 20-time losers who are desperately trying to, like, like I've said before, they, 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 they will have no problem being on the Titanic as long as they're 10 feet higher on the deck than their enemies. If they can watch their enemies drown, then they'll gladly drown first. And that is how sad and pathetic these people are. And so they were itching for time for us to start shooting people. And God forbid if they would have actually gotten someone from the U.S. House or the Senate, and I don't care who it would have been, it could have been a Republican, they probably would have killed the guy. Or the woman. They probably would have. You you can't look at these people as anything else than traitors to the country. And frankly, I'm kind of glad we've been prosecuting them because the mentality is you need to treat these people as harsh as you can. I think that we have been prosecuting. We have been putting these people in jail. We have been exposing them for the frauds they are. I love how in every one of their trials, it's like at the very end when all of a sudden they know the gig's up, all of a sudden they're blubbering out the, I was convinced by liars of something that wasn't true. It's not my fault. 
Delicious. Delicious. Love it. Cry. Trader cry. Nope. That this is, these are horrible people and they all should go to jail. They weren't heroes. I, you know, there, there's been this mentality that, oh, well, if you don't prosecute them, if you don't hold them accountable, that what happens in the long run, what eventually would end up happening is, you know, you're just, you're going to only encourage this to happen. I think the DOJ has been going after these guys. And I think most people, most people in this country are aghast by these people. But what you've got is you've got at least four major news networks whose entire goal is to say, we're not saying the, the election was illegitimate or that voting machines were fraudulent because we don't want to get sued again. But these people were really patriots. No, they weren't. They wiped their feces all over the building. They're not patriots. They're preschoolers. Dumb, stupid idiots who are all now terrified of being outed. But, hey, don't worry. The Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is going to make sure that he goes out there and protects all the criminals who attacked this country, who attacked the Capitol. He's going to protect them and make sure the DOJ can't prosecute them. Proud day, America. Uh, you know, I, 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 I would make a, a legitimate argument that in, in a normal society that that would have done that. That would be the end. 20 years ago, maybe, no, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, if the Republican speaker was so blatantly pro overturning the government of the United States, that that would have been the end, that that Republicans would be in a frantic, that all of them disowning the speaker, calling for an immediate removal, all these things. Nope, they're not going to do a damn thing because the crazy people have taken over the asylum in regards to the Republican Party. That's who they are. They're not so crazy and, and there is no fix in them. And so Johnson is doing this because he wants to let that most far-right MAGA side know, we still got you. I guarantee you when it gets to the general election sometime this summer, he'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't go on out there and try to hide the people that committed crimes. Bull crap. Speaker Johnson, you're a traitor to this country. You are a traitor to America, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Absolutely. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota and WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Good to be with you. Matt McNeil here. Uh, reminder, tomorrow, Cliff Schechter is going to join us in the hour to talk about some national politics. I uh, always enjoy talking to Cliff as well. And also, by the way, there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch with me via the social media pages. You can go to Facebook. It's Progressive Citizen X, Matt McNeil Show. You can find me there on Blue Sky, Matt McNeil Show, on Mastodon, Matt McNeil Show, on Threads, Matt McNeil Show, and on Twitter, it's Matt McNeil Show. Although I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on Twitter. I got to be honest with you. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on there. It's, um, yeah, 
it's it's sad. I've said if I get up to a thousand followers, because I got what four thousand followers on on Twitter. If I've got um, if I get a thousand followers combined on on Threads, Mastodon, and Blue Sky, that it's going to be done. Threads is doing its job. Gosh, I don't know what's going on with Threads, but all of a sudden out of the blue, I'm really picking up followers on Threads, which I'm cool with. Uh, so by all means, go follow me there, and yeah, I'll dump the Twitter. But you can find me there for the time being. All right. All right, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Uh, should mention, speaking of January 6th, uh, you know, as a guy who is in the military, you know, there, there's a thing you can figure out pretty quickly when, when you go into the military that if you ever get into a combat zone, you can always tell the guys that are going to wet themselves when the, 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 you know, things get rough. Let me introduce you to Representative Paul Gozer. The the Gozar the Gazarian, who, uh, of course, was uh, the enemy of Ghostbusters, uh, and now a sitting house rep for Arizona. Funny how that works. I think we should actually go with Gozar the Gazarian. I think that, uh, you know, he might be a little bit more palatable, you know, more, more moderate. Anyway, Gozar was a name to the Republic. It was among the Republicans who talked big on January 6th. But behind the closed doors, he was visibly afraid. This is according to Liz Cheney's new book. <laughs> Mm, spill more. In Oath and Honor, former Representative Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, describes Gozar as standing at the podium speaking when White House House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was rushed out of the chamber. Quickly, others in the House leadership were escorted out as well. Gozer was left standing at the podium dumbstruck. Well, that could have been before people were being left out. I mean, the guy is a freaking moron. I'm serious. It's I'm surprised he doesn't have a drool cup. What? Once we conquer the Hill, Donald Trump is returning to be president, Gosar had said earlier to a cheering crowd. That's right. He was out there talking to the the traitors of America. That's right, Paul Gosar. But as the lawmakers began banging on the doors, uh, or excuse me, as the attackers began banging on the doors of the House chamber and Capitol Police instructed lawmakers to put on their gas masks, Gosar seemed paralyzed with fear, Cheney said. I had not been aware that there were gas masks under the seat of the U.S. chamber. By the way... None, neither did I. I didn't realize those were there. I mean, it's it's like an Oprah giveaway, only not really nice. Uh, Cheney wrote in her book, I reached under my seat and pulled out the black pouch. Inside the pouch was a box that contained another bag. I tore it open the bag and took out the rescue hood inside. I look up and see Gozar still standing in front of the podium where he'd been delivering remarks now that he was afraid and fumbling with his gas mask. Gozar said, how do you even open this? <laughs> Cheney recalled, repeating over and over. He, she grabbed the pouch, opened it, and handed it back to him. Less than an hour before, Gozer had been repeating all kinds of unproven allegations, none of which had gone anywhere in the Arizona lawsuits. He promoted a conspiracy theory that 400,000 ballots had been altered or switched from Trump to Joe Biden, which was an outright lie. If Gozar really believed that there was enough fraud in Arizona to election to overturn it and throw out millions of votes, I wonder how he could have voted if he did less than 27, 72 hours earlier to recognize his own victory and officially seat himself, which is, once again, one of the slight problems that all these anti-Biden you know, Biden conspiracy theory politicians have. A lot of them got elected on the same exact ballots. And their argument is, well, that question was legitimate, but the other question wasn't. You know, yeah, exactly. If, and by the way, I think that that was a mistake. I think that after January 6th, 
if you would have said to these people, then we're going to throw out the entire election, that includes your election, I think very quickly a lot of these Republicans would have immediately said, oh, oh no, no I, I didn't say I thought it was an illegitimate election. I just was saying some people were saying, I, I think I should be still be seated, that sort of thing. Gosar, who, who is later named Stop the Steal group leader by Ali Alexander as being among the four lawmakers who came up with the January 6th event, was to build momentum and pressure. And, of course, then... When you unleash the mob, eh, sometimes they don't just go for the Frankenstein monster. Let's just put it that way. And that's what Johnny Wetpants over there was doing. So, uh, 952-946-6205. Um, I have to admit this next story, to a point, surprises me. Just because, have you guys seen every election since you guys overturned Roe v. Wade on the Republican side? Have you seen this this... This shift that's occurred of 10 to 15 points, pretty much almost across the board. Sometimes it's a little closer, but for the most part, it's a pretty astounding amount of shift. Reminder, in 2022, you guys were having the red tsunami. Yeah, that didn't work for you. (laughs) That that didn't happen, did it? No, you didn't. You didn't get a red tsunami. You kind of got beat badly. Now, you did get the U.S. House, but that's been going spectacularly for you guys. Oh, you, you guys are really leading up the whole place up there. Was was it about the speaker out there insisting we're going to defend the insurrectionists? Oh, good for you. Anywho, uh, they don't seem to be able to read the room, at least not in New Hampshire. No, I do have an actual, but I will say, as as I go through this story, I've got a theory about what they might be doing here. I'll get to that here in a second. Republicans in New Hampshire, ah, Pepperidge Vaughn remembers, Filed one of the most extreme, or filed one of the most extreme abortion bans in the country on Tuesday, and a GOP trifecta could allow the bill to become law once the legislature starts the 2024 session next month. The bill was pre-filed in the House in September, but the full text of the abortion ban was only released Tuesday morning. Yeah. The legislation prohibits abortion other than for a medical emergency if the gestational age of the fetus is more than 15 days. I want to repeat that. The only exception is a medical emergency if the woman's been pregnant for more than 15 days. And I can say as a man who's had three kids, most women probably don't even know they are pregnant until maybe the, 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 the you know, 15 days. So, yeah, this is, this is an, pretty much an outright ban. The 15-day abortion ban filed by Republican lawmakers is an insult to granite staters. State uh, State Representative Alexis Simpson, deputy leader of the New Hampshire House Democratic Caucus on Tuesday. At 15 days, most women don't even know they're pregnant. We must say it like it is. This proposal would mount to a complete abortion ban in New Hampshire with no exceptions. Three Republicans in the House and one in the Senate co-sponsored the bill. The main sponsor, State Representative Dave Testerman, introduced uh, several anti-choice bills last legislative session, including a ban on abortion once a fetal cardiac activity is detected. The sponsors define the medical emergency as a condition in which an abortion is necessary to preserve the life of the pregnant woman whose life is endangered by a physical disorder, physical illness, or physical injury. Notice they specifically did not allow for any mental well-being to be included in that. The legislation specifies that a life-threatening physical condition caused by the pregnancy itself that creates a serious risk of substantial and irreversible impairment of major bodily function is also included under the medical emergency exception. 
There are no exceptions, no exceptions for rape or incest under the bill's current language. The bill includes a felony penalty and a $100,000 fine for any provider who performs or induces an abortion after 15 days gestation. The ban will go into effect January 1st, 2025, if it successfully passes through the state legislature and the governor signs it into law. The ban of 15 days essentially amounts to a total prohibition on abortion. The vast majority of people don't realize they're pregnant until they miss their first menstrual period, usually between four and six weeks' time though it varies depending on the person's cycle. 14 states currently have total abortion bans in the books, and several others have 6-week, 12-week, and 15-week bans in place. The New Hampshire House Democrats will stand together to add the right to abortions to our state constitution and fight against the unrelenting attempts in restricting our constituents' reproductive health care. In a state uh, where voters overwhelmingly believe that reproductive health decisions should be made solely between the patient and the medical provider, reminder, wasn't it funny when, 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 when it was COVID, that 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 was the the scream of all Republicans is like yeah, the decisions of vaccines should be between the, the 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 patient and the doctor that's it but all of a sudden when it's this it's you don't have any rights to privacy that's your that's your Republican hypocrisy I this is all my job is is just to point this crap out so there you go bon appetit. Stopping this bill isn't enough. It must be completely renounced. Some 66% of New Hampshire adults said the 2014 survey they believe abortion should be legal in most or all cases. So, which th- th- that was, by the way, first clue. I'll come back to that here in a second. I got, like I said, I got, I got, uh, I got a theory about something here. New Hampshire is considering a battle as considered a battleground state in presidential elections, but Republicans gained a trifecta in 2021 after flipping both the House and state Senate. However, the GOP majorities in both legislative bodies are slim. In the House, there's 198 Republicans to 195 Democrats, three independents, and four vacancies. The Senate consists of 14 Republicans and 10 Democrats. Governor Chris Sununu. A Republican who has been in office since 2017 has said that he's a pro-choice governor who supports abortion rights. He's reading the writing on the wall. Uh, he says he supports it even into the second trimester. It's not impossible that Sununu would veto the ban if it gets to his desk. So I don't think this is going to pass in New Hampshire. I I just I don't. I think that this is they're just there. There are going to be too many Republicans who are in clearly swing districts, and when you look at 66 percent. That's not a, okay, well, you know, it's, you know, if my district is one or two, you know, plus D on the district, uh, that's going to be a hard sell. No, you're looking, if you've got a 66% approval rate for an issue, you're looking at like plus five, plus six on the Republican side is in jeopardy with that, especially since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's what we have seen. And I'm going to presume that this is going to go very badly for them the next election cycle. So the question I have, especially when you look at that number and you look at the fact that the governor is not going to sign a two-week abortion ban, he's just not, is the point of this bill to basically give some Republicans the ability to get the perception that they're moderate. Reminder, we just had in the last election cycle in 2023, last month, we had a, a, the, 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 a referendum on this new moderate Republican abortion stance 
which was, you know, in Virginia. And it was this, you know, we're not for an outright ban. We want women to have their own choice. We still think there should be some restrictions, but not, I think it was, I don't think it was, was it 16 weeks? Was it 16 weeks there? So it was well into the second trimester. Um, I think was the, was the, the decision they're saying, so we're not, we're, we're not like these Southern states where they're basically, it's, you know, there's no choice at all. We want to have choices up here. And they still lost in Virginia. They still lost. They did not get, this was, this was a referendum on Northam and all that stuff. And it, and it failed in Virginia. So we've already seen the moderate tone fail the Republicans. This is a more unique situation. Clearly, none of the House or the Senate in New Hampshire is up for election. I mean, it sounds like it's a it'll be 2025 when they'll be up for election in New Hampshire. So this is this is it's kind of a safe time to do this bill. And what it does is it creates the ability for Republicans to vote against it, knowing it's not going to go anywhere, knowing that that even in plus four, plus five Republican districts in that state, they're not going to rail hard for this bill because it will doom them the next election. And I'm going to expect, I actually think this is going to be a game plan you're going to see by Republicans across a lot of states where they'll find some right-wing troll of a House member or a senator or both who are in districts where a turnip with an R next to its name would win because they're just that far brainwashed put forward these extraordinarily restrictive abortion bills for the sole reason so that the rest of the Republicans go, hey, you know, I'm not, I personally against abortion, but I don't believe in restrictions like that. That's a little too extreme for me to basically try to portray themselves as somewhat moderates. Because this is a huge freaking problem for the Republican Party. It is a huge freaking problem. And whether or not they're going to be able to figure out some way to overturn this tide that's turned against them after Roe v. Wade. I mean, they tried to vilify transgender people and drag queens and the LGBTQ. That hasn't worked for them. They've tried to moderate their abortion stance. That hasn't worked for them. So maybe this is their next path. I'll talk more when I come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It's the Matt McNeil Show on a Tuesday. Good to be with you uh, this afternoon, this evening. Matt, uh, going back to what I was saying about New Hampshire, you know, like I said, I don't, they tried to turn the culture warriors against the drag queens and the LGBTQ population and transgender people, and that has not worked. Uh, like they, they they were kind of hoping it would be there that you know they had all these people that were swimming in the same direction to get rid of Roe v Wade and now that that's kind of blown up their face they try to get it to go the other way and you know they just sound like a bunch of hate mongers and that's they sound horrible bigots that's what they sound like um they tried the more moderate approach so now now I think this is what it's going to be is you're going to see these setup votes and I mean it's not going to happen here at least in Minnesota I mean because the Democrats control everything so they're not even going to allow you know, a, a bill like that to come up, they won't even get out of a committee hearing. But, you know, in some of these states where they have Republican you know, majorities, don't be surprised if you see bills like this, these just, even in more moderate states, these outrageous bills all of a sudden come up for the vote solely for the purpose of basically Republicans can say, you know, 
you know, I, I, I personally am against abortion, but I'm not that guy, you know, that sort of thing. Because they got to figure out some way to basically convince people that taking away your rights is somehow a virtue. And that's who these people are. They are taking away your rights. This is, and this is every election, every stinking election. That this is this is every election. That's what you have to remember. From here on out, everyone votes. Everyone votes. 952-946-6205. Uh, final thing this uh, this uh, this hour, I wanted to uh, check in on the stupidest human being to ever become the senator in the U.S. Senate, Tommy Tuberville. That's right. And I'm dead serious. That dude is a brick with lips. He is D-U-M dumb. I mean, he is really stupid. I mean, I wouldn't trust him with a spoon stupid. He is really an idiot. And so he thought, dumb guy, make fun things, stop military. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I still made him sound, sound smarter than he really is. Uh, the Tuberville of Alabama said Tuesday he is going to stop his pathetic charade and he's releasing a bulk of his holds for Senate votes to confirm military promotions. Good. Now, once again, I'm a veteran of the military. It was clear from what I was reading in, say, Stars and Stripes and other military outlets that clearly this was impacting the readiness and preparedness of the U.S. military. And we just have a boat out in the middle of the Red Sea that's getting fired on. And it sounded like, if I'm not mistaken, there was at least two people in the chain of command that, that would be responsible for that boat who were not being seated because of Tuberville. And I don't know if that was finally enough for him to basically say, okay, I am actually jeopardizing the troops at this point. I need to stop. I don't know. But I will say, you know, this this whole charade, his whole thing was basically that he wanted to um, force Biden to, to um, you, know, you know, basically pull back on his um, – the, the 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 ability for military personnel to get abortions, even in places where abortions were illegal. Um, and, you know, they were like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, you know, take away the rights of the military people who are fighting for our freedom. Tuberville told his colleagues in a closed-door meeting in the Capitol that he will release the promotions of three-star nominees and below the vast majority of the nominees. The move comes after he faced bipartisan pressure. I mean, and, and it does sound like Senate, senators in Republican senators were viciously going after him saying, you are screwing this up. It wasn't one or two. I mean, it was quite a few of the Republican senators were livid with this idiot. Um, the move comes after he faced bipartisan pressure uh, on the holds. Tuberville had started uh, in March and delayed the confirmations of more than 450 top military nominees. Tuberville made the announcement that he was backing off the military holds with the exceptions of a few more, fewer than a dozen four-star promotions during a Senate lunch. He said it was important that Republicans be united and not vote for rules changes that would have allowed Schumer to bring up the nominees in block. And so basically that's it was that was kind of the other thing too, is that they had finally said enough and that there was it did sound like enough Republicans were so upset with him that they could have easily gotten past any kind of 60-vote threshold and just approved all the military promotions at his expense. So now he's basically saying, hey, Republicans, don't vote to, to stop this. Let me still hold on to the senior-level military officers. Let me stop them from getting promotions. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. 
after almost a year of holding up the promotions of military nominees in opposition to military's reproductive rights policy, Tuberville says he has no regrets after he released hundreds of holds without getting anything in return. We, is there anything more predictable than when a Republican... You remember when Ted Cruz, they shut down the government and it ended up, not only did it not do anything that we lost like something like $4 billion uh, that we ended up having to pay because he shut down the government. And he came on out and was like, I think we sent a message. Yeah, the message is you're a freaking idiot. How about that? That's the message you sent to everyone. You're a moron. Here's Tuberville. We saw some success. What are you talking about? You didn't do a damn thing, you idiot. We didn't get as much out of this as we wanted, Tuberville said. Hey, I've heard actually there was some discussions that maybe they were thinking about starting to pull the military bases out of Alabama. That's how much he's ruffled the feathers of the troops is that there was discussion, I think, at the highest levels of the military saying, all right, do we need any bases in Alabama? We can put them in Mississippi. We can put them over in Georgia. We don't need them in Alabama, do we? So I think that might have, if that's true, if that's true, that might have put some pressure on him too. Uh, Tuberville added, uh, actually, no, he didn't say that. He did say, the only opportunity you get to people up on the left here is to listen to you as the minorities to put up, uh, is to put a hold on something. I think, yeah, no one did anything. What are you, what are you talking about? Stop acting like you basically got your way. No, you just look like a petulant man child who's too stupid to not look straight up into the sky when it's raining. Stop it. Tuberville. Here's, here is, this is where, this is where, yeah. Asked what his message was to military families who have been affected by his holds, Tuberville responded, Thank you for, for your service. As a veteran myself, from the bottom of my heart, if I may speak on behalf of all the people that you've just you know, screwed over with your, your, your foolish methods here, go blank yourself, you jackass. <laughs> okay? That's you, Senator Tuberville. Go blank yourself. You absolutely horrible human being. You are not worthy of of working at an ice cream stand, let alone being in the Senate. Uh, thank you much. We'll be back. Hour two up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt, Brett, Patrick, all here today. Uh, we should say, I mean, just we we haven't really, you know, I haven't talked too much about a lot of the things that we've had happen here, but... We've had, of course, our, our 3 o'clock hour is carried in Chicago at 9 o'clock at night. I listened to it last night. That's weird, man. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, it is a little weird to hear. You're listening to the best in Chicago progressive voice. Now it's time uh, for the Matt McNeil uh, Show. And uh, hope your expectations weren't set too high. Sure. <laughs> uh, the good news is if you do have high expectations, our evening programming, mwah, chef's kiss. Because we got Rick at 8. Patty now is at nine, and then we've got uh, the you know Shag and Scoob over at ten o'clock, right? Absolutely, Greg Bakken with Ghost Box Radio. A uh, part of my nightly routine now is. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Greg. I'm sorry. Funny, I think. <laughs> okay, good. I hope yeah. you do, Greg. I love your show. It's good stuff. And as a matter of fact, a lot of fans of it. Uh, but what would it be without radio? Without rivalries between the hosts, oh. with you and uh, <laughs> Greg giving each other the stink guy from now on. You know, don't done. get me and Tom Hartman in the same room yeah. together. We'll start throwing <laughs> throwing fists, man. We're After throwing... the incident last year, yeah. Uh, yes. 
Uh, a few things we have to discuss. First of all, we do have a new state seal. I think, of course, we have the state seal and the state flag images. I think all of us said there was one state seal that was up and above better than everyone else. That's uh, the loon that's up and, you know, kind of up and it's got grain and water and pines. And, and I mean, it is clearly the best of the images. You, if you, see, you know which one I'm talking about with the state, the state seal? I, I think I know which one, but I will say any of these are an improvement over the current flag, which is just no, very, the, there's very... No, there's a seal. This is a seal, not oh, the, the flag. Seal. Oh, I the got seal. you. The yeah. seal, um, ah. it was also pretty bad. It was a busy flag. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the flag is busy. We still haven't had a solution on this. I think that Snowflake Star one is the leader ah. right now. We, uh, But it sounds like, okay, so with the, 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 the seal, the state seal, it sounds like, okay, now that we've figured this out, there's some tweaks that they want to make to it. So I'm going to presume if they get to the final on the flag, will they'll make some tweaks to it and we'll see if we can find some way to, because there's always going to be people that's like, hey, hey, you know, no matter what, that's just their natural stance. I think it's, you know, you got to, you got to update it. You got to change it. And oh, no matter what, there's going to be a substantial amount of the population that's going to hate it just because that's just the way things are. I, I noticed that last night when I was checking Facebook. I had a friend that goes, what was wrong with the current flag? I don't like all of these. Have you even looked at the, the current flag? It's not good. These new designs are way better. They're less busy. You can They mean something. Well, there's and also so much the, going the, on the on that flag curve. was somewhat racist. And there's that little thing, too. <laughs> yes. It was yeah, like, yeah. hey, we're the white people working the land by Native Americans. You know, no, that needs to go. That yeah. needs to go. Uh, so, okay. So I don't know when the flag is going to come on out. Anita's in town. Anita Gall, who's part of that committee, she's in town on the 12th, I think it is. So we'll see if I can get her into the show and talk with her in-house. And she, maybe she can bring us some honey. That honey was tasty. Well, that's the motivation you know, right there. Say, oh, it really is a whole thing. Uh, so, guys, got good news for us. A cougar has been spotted in Minneapolis. There, there, here we go. Just one? Yeah, well, I mean, depends on. I mean, is that the Galleria? I mean, it was. No, no. Cougar tracks. Now, oh, Kitty's got some claws. Uh, cougar. Sorry. You can't put a story out like this and not expect me to be a child. Cougar tracks were spotted in the snow in a Minneapolis neighborhood Tuesday morning. One day after the big cat was captured on home security footage, the cougar sauntered across the driveway in Lowry Hill. This is downtown, man. At around 3.30 a.m. Well, I mean, at least he was walking home from the bars. I mean, let's, let's just be honest with you. That's the way to do it. Um, these, they, they, where would it be? It's got to be down where they're building the light rail. Because that's down the hill yeah. there. It's got to be in there somewhere. Hello. Dan, is there anyone missing a puppy? Because I can tell you right, that, that thing would take out cat, dog, anything. Yeah, that's a little scary to have a cougar roaming around that area. Okay, okay actually, no. Okay, stop. How many dumpsters are over there off those restaurants? I mean, he's down at Uptown Diner, right down the street at 20, 26 in Hennepin. I mean, he's getting some of those flapjacks. That's what he, that's, <laughs> is, How fat is this cat? <laughs> I just hope he doesn't go on the territory of the turkeys. Otherwise, we could have a real conflict on our hands. Oh, man. I heard they're very territorial. Like cougars allowed. With wolves taking on a a, a moose, it'd be like turkeys taking on the cougar. I'm putting money on the turkeys. (laughs) Yeah, they could win with numbers. They are mean. The turkeys of Minneapolis are mean. Um there's a sense of excitement. Oh, that's one word to put it. To have something like that in your neighborhood and also cause a concern. Okay, who doesn't like a cougar in their neighborhood? Sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing this. I'm sorry. I'm going to be doing this the entire time. So just kind of buckle up and just prepare yourself because it's just as stupid the first time as it is the second time. Um, 
Even more surprising was seeing cougar tracks on the street Tuesday morning after Monday night's snowfall. Robin Bruggerman posted a video Monday on the neighborhood website next door. Great. <laughs> Let me tell you why the cougars are racist. And oh, somehow great, thank it's you. spiraled into a political debate about oh, Obama and Biden. Yeah. No, 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 I'd rather have the cougars. Oh, never mind. I'm not going to. I'm not. No. It, yeah. Next door is a cesspool. Um, 50 comments on the Nextdoor app, uh, people expressing shock, awe, concern of the animal. The authorities have been notified about the sighting. The mark's only the second time a cougar has been spotted in Hennepin County since 20, 2004. Come on. It depends on where you're hanging out, man. Have you, have you gone to some of the restaurants down by Galleria? <sighs> Take your pick. <laughs> have you gone to a Bally's Fitness, man? I mean, they're just going to let you know. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, like I said. Uh, there's also one spotted a few weeks ago in Carver County. Do you think it got up here from Carver? How could it? It could. I mean, I guess it would have to cross one of the bridges at that point, but, or maybe, you know, I don't think the rivers are frozen, so it couldn't cross that way. It'd probably come across one of the bridges. Yeah, maybe uh, late at night or low traffic or something. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Encountering a cougar, also known as a mountain lion, is extremely rare in Minnesota. Many cougars avoid confrontation. Uh, it sounds like most people most people in the state, I'm not going to bother with it. If someone does run into one of the big cats, the DNRMX recommends facing it, speaking loudly and firmly to combat the animal's tendency to hunt by stalking. Uh, by the way, not what you do with the other kind of cougar. I mean, just don't do that. Hi there, my name's Fell. <laughs> So you make him go <laughs> talk loudly and make eye contact. Hi there. How are you? Do you like Vikings football? Uh, guys, don't. No. Just stop, okay? Shooting a cougar is illegal under state law, thank God, even to protect livestock or pets. Public safety officers are the only people authorized to kill a cougar that poses a threat to humans. Oh, good. The Minneapolis police have showed up. <laughs> Encounters and sightings should be reported as soon as possible as conservation officer or local law enforcement so that evidence such as tracks, hair, and scat. And boy, that, 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 that internship is sure paying off, isn't it? It can be documented. I'm just curious when you get the 911 call, which cop has to do that? Has to be the person that has to go take out the cougar. It's got to be an unusual call. Well, I mean, the yeah. hope, I would hope you could yeah. just I've, – I've only seen one cougar, and it wasn't even in Minnesota. It was on the Canadian side of the Loon River. I went up to, to Crane Lake, took the Loon River up to Loon Lake, and went fishing up there, one of the border lakes. And I, there's this huge stretch there where it's this big rock wall. And I saw it, and it, it literally did one of those big stretches and ran up the hill. I said, yeah, that had to be. My dad was saying, are you sure it wasn't a lynx? I said, it just looked way too big to be a lynx. So mountain lion, that's the only one I've ever seen. And that wasn't close. I'm going to guess a football field distance. And he was way up on top of the hill. So that's the only one time I've ever seen it. So I apparently it's time for me to go roam the neighborhoods of Lowry Hill. But cologne does not help you in this situation on either side. Just going to let you know. Extra cologne doesn't help. But talking loudly and making eye contact does. All right. Speaking of which. So apparently (laughs) there is – this is over at the Midtown Global Market. Someone has built a – created a snow creature image, and they want people to name it. Now – I, I, I'm going to show this on camera and I'm going to show this to Brett and, and, and there you go. <laughs> yeah, Brett's, Brett's, Brett's facial expression a, is there. This is out of racket, Minnesota. You can see it there at racket. That is a disturbing creature. 
That is, and 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 you know, like Ken, there's nothing down below the waistline. Let's just put it that way. Um, I, I, so imagine, how would I describe this? Imagine if a Jedi kind of got on a, like a, a body sculpting class, I guess, you know, <laughs> it's kind of thinner, but still the goofy Yeti face. Um, I think we get him to call him the McNeil. I mean, can we get them to call it? Because it is actually kind of a likeness. Oh, we could switch your logo instead of the Sasquatch. <laughs> I'm not against this. Uh, although, I mean, the Sasquatch, this is really kind of disturbing. I mean, this is around where people are eating? I don't know. Patrick, have you seen the picture of the, the bizarre creature? I have not. And now I don't really want to, but that's, I'll probably have to. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's part of your part of your job. Um, yeah, you can apparently name this beast. I, like I said, I think we go with McNeil, uh, but, uh, it's over at Midtown Global Market. You can go see it. Scare the kids. Happy holidays. I think that's, that's the, that is a disturbing image, isn't it? Yeah. Something like a mummy got into a genetic experiment, or as you said, a Yeti just started hitting the gym pretty hard. It's one of those things. (laughs) Considering kind of a goofy look, really pale white. Guessing Republican voter right there. So I'm sorry. 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 It's not Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene. Is uh, it? This, is, this is the leader for Trump's running mate right now. <laughs> Hello. I want you to be running with me. I like the way you look. You remind me of a large pile of ice cream. You want to go with <laughs> It does actually look like a large pile of ice cream that's come to life. Uh, you Go see it. Go rack it. Minnesota's got the picture of it. It's the bone-chilling snow creature that lives inside the Midtown Global Market. It doesn't live. It's just a statue. But it's looking for a new name, McNeil. Do we know it doesn't live? We might have to have Bakken go check that out. That thing's kind of freaky. I I know where we can find a cougar to go take care of it if it is. (laughs) (laughs) Minneapolis has got quite a good wildlife scene. Uh, The snow creature is being taken out by a cougar here. Oh, look, empanadas are on sale. Mm, Yum. Love those. (laughs) If someone tells something tells me that artist is going to make a mint off of that thing when they eventually do sell it, can they? Could they put it in the studio? Come on, man! We'll get it next to Lindell. Oh we'll, yeah, we'll, that would be. We'll put the we'll put the creature in the corner. Lindell. Well, no, the creature is Lindell. Uh, we'll put him the, the the snow thing next to the the creature, and there. Gosh, I mean that would that would be a lovely addition to the studio. We could start a collection of these cardboard cutouts after a while of uh, <laughs> various right-wing figures and random just statues or cutouts. Yeah. I love the idea of that. All right. Uh, we've goofed around enough. We actually have our good friend uh, Patrick Cooligan finally returning uh, after kind of an on-and-off stretch here. But he's back with us from the Minnesota Reformer to talk about what stories you guys get into. Yeah, today. we have no shortage of topics to talk about today. We're going to be uh, visiting his uh, column that talked about uh, – Talked about the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland from uh, 25 years ago, and mm. talking about how well some of the how Ireland got sick of political violence, and how we can draw some parallels here in the United States. We'll also be talking about uh, their great article they took out or they wrote that talked about how here in the metro area, no, we are paying more in taxes than oh, rural yeah. Minnesotans. So that and a lot more are coming up with Patrick Hooligan. Jam-packed interview today. I love how they took down Dom. Senator Dom's a Republican who tried to suggest that, oh, we're, you're, you're taking our taxpayer dollars. Oh, stop Yeah, he you. was uh, fudging some math on that. For a sure. little. Yeah. Yeah, he was fudging something there. All right, it's uh, Brett talking to Patrick Hooligan from the Minnesota Reformer right here on AM 950. 
AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That's Patrick Kulikan. Great resource for the latest in Minnesota news and politics is minnesotareformer.com. As we have a number of stories to talk about today, including the fact that, well, the Twin Cities metro area, to no one's surprise, ends up, uh, well, uh, spending more money than they take in in terms of tax revenue, which kind of flies in the face of what Republicans often say. We'll also be talking about whether shoplifting levels are rising or falling in Minnesota. Plus, we'll be talking about a dispute that a couple of DFL lawmakers may be having on Israel. And we'll also touch on Patrick's column about the Good Friday Agreement that was reached 25 years ago and some parallels that could uh, be relevant towards today. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about, well, where our tax money is getting spent, who's taking in more money or who's maybe taking in less money. That has to do with the whole urban versus rural divide. Because Madison McVann recently wrote an article in the Minnesota Reformer talking about how it's really the metro area taxpayers that end up, well, footing more of the bill as compared to our rural residents in Minnesota, which is uh, something we often hear Republicans talk about saying, well, it's actually rural people who are getting the worst end who are spending more money than they're taking in when it's the exact opposite situation. So... This all kind of stemmed from this uh, New Ulm Republican, Gary Doms, who said rural people are getting a bad deal as he says that rural Minnesotans are taking in less money as compared to metro Minnesotans on transportation, health care, and education. So I'm curious, where is he getting these numbers from, and are these generally misleading that Republicans often cite when they say that rural people are having an undue burden of the tax, of the tax uh, rate? Yeah, he's talking specifically about uh, nursing home reimbursement rates um, and then also uh, transportation dollars um, and and finally uh, uh, education dollars per pupil. And um, in, in many cases, he's just flat wrong. Um, and in other cases, there's perfectly good explanations. Uh, for instance, let's, let's take education. There's a very complicated formula. Uh, that the that the state uses to determine uh, how much uh, aid goes to each individual school district. Um, some of that is, is based on the, the 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 kind of student population you have. For instance, if you have a lot of English language learners, if you have a lot of students who um, are qualified for free and reduced price lunch, um, um, then you're going to get more. And I think most people would agree that that's totally reasonable. There's also uh, extra money for school districts that are really spread out. Um, and so they, they require more money for transportation. Um, so the, the fact that uh, some urban school districts like, say, Minneapolis um, gets more than some rural uh, districts, um, it's, it's simply a matter of a, of a, uh, a mathematical, uh, very complicated algorithm. Um, and there's plenty of districts. Uh, it goes the other way where you have uh, suburban districts in particular who are getting the least amount, uh, metro suburban districts, uh, compared to rural districts that are getting a lot because of uh, for various reasons. Um, but I, I think the the, the more um, cogent point here is that uh, there's this idea that, that somehow the, the metro is, is kind of like a site off of rural uh, Minnesota, and uh, it's just completely untrue, especially if you look at the tax side. I mean, and, and it makes perfect sense. We have more people, we have uh, higher paying jobs, and we have uh, more valuable property. And 
So as a result, there's just a lot more tax revenue coming out here. And if you think about it a little bit, um, I think it makes sense. For instance, we've been having a debate about whether or not we should have uh, copper sulfide mining in, in uh, northeastern Minnesota. And we often hear estimates about how many jobs uh, a mine might create. And, and uh, in the case of uh, PolyMet, um, you know, it's six or 700 jobs. Well, the reality is that if you go on to United Health uh, website, you will find six or seven hundred job openings, and and these are really high-paying uh, jobs, programmers and uh, business development, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I I don't think it should surprise anyone that we're we're paying way more taxes in the metro um, than than Greater Minnesota, I, um, and the other disadvantage that Greater Minnesota faces is that they don't have these economies of scale um, like we do, so it's more expensive to provide a lot of services. And then they also don't have, uh, they, often small communities, um, they, they can't afford to, or, or they, they don't have any band staff who's applying for grants, for instance. Um, so um, it's just a, a common misconception, um, which unfortunately drives a lot of political polarization and a, and a lot of um, really bitterness. Um, and it's just uh, it's all based on uh, uh, a myth. And uh, so we, we hope to uh, correct Senator Dobbs and we'll, we'll see uh, if he learns uh, if he learns from us or not. Yeah, well, remains to be seen whether that's going to be the case. But just to finish up on this as well, I, you brought up some logical points as to why in some cases, well, the metro area may be spending more than we take in or even vice versa. You brought up the case where, well, the metro area obviously has more people. We have jobs that pay more money. Property values are higher. And even if you look at sales tax, well, oftentimes people from rural areas will end up spending those sales tax dollars in metro areas when they have to do their shopping. And you even brought up the example of, I think this was the city of Big Fork, Minnesota, a town of 400, where, yeah, the mayor talked about how they have an affordable housing crisis and they'd like to apply for some grants to help, but they simply, being a town of 400, can't afford to hire someone to do that full-time job to apply for all of these grants. So I guess the point I'm making is that Really, there's a lot of logical reasons when you sometimes see these disparities between urban and rural tax revenues versus expenses. There's logical reasons that it's not this whole idea that, well, one side is out to get the other, rural people are out to screw over urban people, or urban people are out to screw over rural people. Oftentimes, there's logical reasons why we see these disparities. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's really not uh, politics. And I, I think if you, if you look at the bonding bills, these, these are the bills that are... Uh, every other year or or every year lately um that are public works uh projects um and uh, because it's borrowed money require usually requires a supermajority. Uh, if you look at these bills they're really geographically pretty balanced and you know the, the committee the capital investment committee goes out to these really far-flung communities and is investing uh serious money in water infrastructure and and road and bridge uh construction and and maintenance um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, uh, is there going to be some geographic imbalance because of the way our politics have become so geographically polarized? Yeah, probably. But generally speaking, um, this is not, uh, some grand conspiracy, um, by Metro folks, um, to, to try to, uh, take from 
rural Minnesota. Um, that's just not what's going on at all. Well, staying on the topic of myths, let's go to another myth that is often floated by uh, Republicans and people who are on the right side of the aisle, and that has to do with the fact that, well, pretty much ever since the pandemic, we have had out-of-control crime throughout the Twin Cities, and especially when it comes to shoplifting. But some interesting numbers just come out came out from the Council of Criminal Justice talking about, well, the monthly reported shoplifting rates per 100,000 people. And that rate in the Twin Cities has fallen dramatically since the pre-pandemic levels of 2019, where, where if you look at the stats, the shoplifting instances are really going down quite dramatically. So I guess my question is, why are we seeing this reduction in shoplifting, and why is that perception still out there that crime is out of control when really the data is flying in the face showing that it's not out of control, especially with shoplifting? Yeah, our reporter Chris Ingram did some great uh, work on this. I mean, there's, it's possible that, uh, that the stores, the retailers are not reporting it. Um, it's possible that they've taken, um, and I think a lot of us have seen the measures they've taken to prevent um, shoplifting, um, but they, there's a lot of evidence to think that that's actually, it's just, it, there's less shoplifting going on. Um, and as far as why we're hearing so much about it, uh, continuously is probably related to the fact that, uh, the, the shoplifting that is happening is tends to be more organized and kind of sensational. Um, but apparently, um, it's, it's actually uh, happening uh, less frequently uh, than it was even pre-pandemic. So it's kind of another example of uh, a, an ongoing story uh, with a lot of sensationalized media and uh, a lot of self-interested political actors, like you said, on the right side of the spectrum, who want us to think that uh, the cities in particular are these kind of chaotic, crime-ridden hellscapes. And um, there's at least some evidence pointing in the other direction. Well, you can read more about Christopher Ingham's reporting on that, uh, talking about shoplifting and how it's falling in the Twin Cities over at MinnesotaReformer.com. Now, I want to move on to a column that you wrote last week that has to do with the Good Friday Agreement that was signed a little over 25 years ago over in Ireland and some parallels we can draw from the troubles we saw in Ireland to some of the political conflict and political violence we are seeing in the United States because your column suggests that the conflict's resolution was influenced, well, largely by the fighters who were aging in that conflict and their desire to protect their children and just overall kind of being sick of the violence. Can you elaborate on on how some of the personal experiences of the soldiers and people who were involved in that conflict, as well as their responsibilities of now being in parenthood and now in government at that time, kind of shifted their their takes away from violence and more towards, well, getting away from violence in Ireland. The reason that I, I was interested in this, uh, my, my ancestors come from there, but also uh, the, the topic of political violence uh, is really has interested me uh, and, a, and a lot of us, I think, in the last, uh, uh, since 2016, when um, it does seem as if um, we've seen an uptick in political violence, and it feels like there could be an explosion of it, um, and, and I think that's a lot, a lot of us fear about uh, next the next this com- upcoming election. And so I, I wanted to uh, get a sense for a, a country that had endured that kind of uh, political bloodshed, and, and also a sense for how it all came to an end. And um, the, the problem is that, that 
violence can be just so cyclical and kind of it creates its own logic where uh, if you were to stop the violence, then all of the suffering that had come before suddenly lacks any meaning. And so that this it becomes a, a reason for its own uh, continuation and uh, makes it very hard to stop. And uh, so I read this great book uh, by Finn O'Toole, who, who kind of recounts the last uh, 50 years or so of Irish history. And he, he talks a little bit about what, how, how it stopped. And, I mean, a couple things were the, the, the youthful leaders on both sides. Um, they kind of grew up and they had children of their own. And they just didn't want to subject their own children to this, all this violence and suffering. And then the second part was they got more involved in normal politics. Uh, like, think of it as a constituent service. Uh, you know, instead of uh, hunger strikes, and uh, setting bombs, as they had got elected to parliament and so forth, they were suddenly, uh, you know, chasing down, uh, as I put it, chasing down somebody's lost welfare check and that kind of thing. And when you get involved in normal politics, suddenly pragmatic concerns become uh, front and center, as opposed to uh, violent revolutionary concerns. And, um, and I think one of the things that we're seeing in the United States Congress is uh, so many members have gotten away from those normal political concerns of, uh, you know, Ange- Representative Angie Craig is always, uh, I'm always getting a press release about how the mail services <laughs> needs to be improved. And it's like, that's the kind of politics I would like to see <laughs> return in America as opposed to, um, you know, there's some of the nonsense that we see uh, from the likes of the Freedom Caucus uh, who are um, openly engaging in um something pretty close to revolutionary politics. And you would hope it wouldn't take something like we saw in Ireland, where we had just a whole bunch of violence that basically led to people, as you said, well, going into government and realizing, well, wait, there are everyday needs people that people have, and the fact that, well, we have children, that we don't want to subject them to the same violence. And I guess I kind of say that, because if we are to have political future political violence in America at a large scale, I don't think it's going to be, you know, like the 1860s with a full-on civil war. It'll probably be something much more like we saw with the kind of conflicts in in Ireland back in the back in the late 20th century and I think yeah there certainly are some lessons we could learn from over there to take to here and I just hope it doesn't take what we saw in Ireland to well to have us uh, tone down some of the political violence rhetoric that we often see right now let's hope and then the other yeah. concern about uh, the situation here is that there's 400 million guns floating around the United States um, and th- that was always a, an issue for the IRA uh, was getting their hands on weapons. And that would never be an issue for, for yeah. any uh, violent political group here. Yeah, unfortunately, as you said, yeah, there would be uh, no shortage of weapons that they would have access to with the gun laws in our country. And one more story to cover before we have to wrap things up, and this has to do with some divisions we've been seeing among Democrats on the issue of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Now, where we're going to go is an email exchange between State Senators Ron Latz and Omar Fatah, who are both Democrats, and it has to do with a Facebook post by Rich Ginsburg, who is a DFL lobbyist and Metropolitan Airports Commissioner member who was appointed by Governor Tim Walls. Now, Ginsburg made a Facebook post that included a quote from Golda Meir, who is the late Israeli Prime Minister who helped found the country. And he said, quote, Peace will come when Arabs will love their children more than they hate us. And Omar Fatah.
Utah took exception to that post being made and then ended up having an email exchange with Ron Latz over this. So walk us a little bit through about this exchange between Fatah and Latz and what were some of the key points that were raised by both members? Yeah, there, there is a really serious division um, in the DFL on this issue. Uh, I think it's pretty painful, and I, I think it was kept under wraps uh, for the first six weeks or so of the conflict, and now it's really uh, come out into the open. And uh, Senator Fatah um, had, had wanted, wants the removal of Ginsburg. Ginsburg is a, a longstanding uh, DFL operative and uh, lobbyist and fundraiser. Um, and, uh, and, and Senator Fate said, uh, you know, you're only, you're, you're not, he's selling his colleagues. The reason you're so quiet on this is because he raises money for the party. Um, and, uh, Latz, um, defended, um, Ginsburg and kind of gave the full context of the Golden Way My Year quote. And, uh, Fate re- re- replied in kind. Um, still, um, you know, quite angry and it's an emotional issue and, um, and the party is certainly divided. Uh, it's, it, it, and it exposes, uh, divisions, other divisions in the party. And I think it's, um, you know, do, do voters make decisions based on the conflict in, in the Middle East that doesn't involve the United States? Probably not. Um, but I, I don't think the DFL wants to go into this next election cycle um, with deep emotional um, wounds related uh, to this conflict. And, and I, I don't see how it's going to be um, going to be healed. Um, and of course, it was made even worse when Lats made a speech last week um, that uh, he was sharply criticized for uh, when he said something to the effect that uh, Palestinian children dream of, um, of, of winning uh, glory of martyrdom. He says he was referring to the, um, the indoctrination of anti-Semitism in, in Gaza schools, um, but that was um, not a satisfactory explanation for 13 of his colleagues who wrote a letter to, uh, to him, uh, um, a sharp rebuke of him and so this conflict is uh it's ongoing and uh we'll have to see if they're able to to come to some kind of understanding uh, remember the state senate is 34 33 dfl I and mean, it's very closely divided they really need to hang together and one of the one of the reasons they they were so successful the the democrats last year in getting their legislative agenda passed is because that that Senate caucus hung together, even though there were some sharp disagreements on a number of issues. But this is, uh, you know, this, this really um, could be a real problem um, when the legislative session starts in February and then certainly for the election. You can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, the exchange between uh, the two DFLers. Again, minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. We are just about out of time today. But, Patrick, as always, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure. Let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.
950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show, 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Good to have you with us today. Uh, I wanted to get to a story today from, um, that actually was, it was from yesterday, um, that, 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 that just obviously has a, a lot of impact and in regards to kind of how people are perceiving the mayor. Uh, Minneapolis City Council was debating rent control policy for the past two and a half years. Mayor Jacob Fry was assuring developers behind the scenes that he'd never let it happen. Between early 2021 and late 2023, Fry sent 10 letters to developers, investors, and real estate brokers that included a line promising that he wouldn't support classic rent control in Minneapolis. He also vowed to oppose any policy that didn't exempt new construction according to correspondence obtained by Axios and open records requests. Now, you know, homelessness, we, we've talked about this a few times, and we have a, the, the reason why we have homelessness and having a problem is we have a housing crisis right now. We don't have affordable housing. We do not have a housing. We have tons of housing for people making 60, 70, 80, $100,000 a year. We have tons of McMansions being built all over the place for people making five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars a year. We have, you know, huge houses about on uh, that are being built for people that make millions and millions a year. But you don't have low-income apartments. You do not have low-income housing being built. It just is not happening. And by the way, I'm starting to get a little concerned that this whole system is going to crash because they're just there's just not that many people that can just continually to pay this amount of money unless. All you're doing is, you know, getting things into the hands of landlords. And I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing for us either. We need to have affordable housing. And we don't want to have a situation like the Bay Area and nothing against the fine folks in the Bay Area. But, I mean, their housing is insane. They just it's you know, you're paying for a closet space for $2,000 a month. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how, how bad things have gotten out there. And, you know, frankly, we, the idea of rent control, I, I think you have to put something in place here to prevent people from, you know, air, you're building a building. And even if you do have lower income housing in there, you know, you basically all the, the, the units are, are rented out and either being used as Airbnbs or being sold and used as Airbnbs. And I think you have to have some rules in place that basically say low-income housing has to be preserved and you can't have 80% of your rental spaces in a building be rental units, you know, that you know, short-term rental units. So we got a big housing problem here, and I don't think the mayor is helping out too much. The letters show how far Fry is willing to go to make sure housing development didn't slow down in the city with the belief that more supply would drive down prices. Wow, really? You think that? They also provide further confirmation that the mayor never planned to implement a strict rent control policy recommended by a working group made up of tenants and landlords. Fry's backdoor rhetoric largely matched what he was saying publicly at the time. In, recently, in a recent interview with Axios, the mayor said he wrote the letters at the request of developers who needed them to assure investors, some of who didn't follow the news in the Twin Cities. I wanted to be very clear and lay out my position so that the pipeline of investment in supply wasn't cut off, and we've seen in so many other cities. 
Fryson, one to Minneapolis-based Ryan Coes, and Kirkland, Washington-based Widener, 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 apartment homes in December. Three months later, the two firms broke ground on 25-unit, 350-unit apartment tower next to U.S. Bank Stadium that will open next year. Understanding Mayor Fry's perspective on rent control was helpful and was one of the fact, many factors that contributed to the announcement of the 4th and Park Project, Ryan developer wrote in an email to Axios. Jennifer Arnold, executive director of the um, Inquilnix, uh, the United Renters for Justice, an organization that advocates for rent control policy, said Frey has been unwilling to engage in the topic, even though voters approved moving an ordinance forward in the 2021 election. We expect our elected officials to listen to and work with all sides of an issue facing the city and try to solve issues. Here's my problem with Mayor Fry, is that You do. Oh, it, it, this is not about you and a handful of companies making the decision for everyone else, sir. I am a business major. Let me make sure you understand something very clear because I don't think you understand this, Mr. Mayor. Companies are there to make money. There's not benevolence in their heart. They're just not. They are there to make money. And the fact that you know you're buying their their load of well, we just keep building more and more buildings, and the rents will come down. It doesn't work that way. And you're turning your back on your own citizens. How much does rent need to go up more before you even you say, okay, maybe this is getting a little high? You need to do something here more than just call the developers and tell them, what do you want me to say? Homelessness is not... You know, sure, there are some elements of drug use and there's some elements of mental health and and stuff like this. But the vast majority of homelessness is a housing issue. And it's not just Minneapolis. I mean, it is happening in every single community in the state. There is just not affordable housing. That these companies, these companies that, that some people are portraying as benevolent only look at how in the world can we make money off these things. I have talked with people that work in the construction industry, and they say straightforward, they won't build buildings like they used to build in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, which were designed for, you know, say, a lower income. The only thing they're worried about is making sure that that the buildings can make the most they possibly can. And some cities have regulations that say a certain amount of the building's rental units have to be for lower income housing, which is a good thing. But then a lot of those same cities don't have rules in place that basically make sure that the lower income people are get indeed getting those units and they can sell them on off. They get you or they get rented on off. And once again, a lot of these places they're turned around and used as Airbnbs and stuff like that. It is somewhat deeply disappointing that the mayor seems to have turned his back on the voters, on the city council, on this, on his own, you know, housing council, and basically said, you know, I'm just going to do the will, the the will of the construction companies. That's not going to solve this problem, sir. It's not. And no, dude, no. High-end apartment complex after high-end apartment complex after high-end apartment complex is not going to all of a sudden, we're cheap in rent. 
What do you do? You think that that's what's going to happen? Because if if that does happen, no one's going to be building anything. If all of a sudden the building that they have allotted for themselves to be a three thousand to four thousand dollar a month rental, all of a sudden if that's down to a thousand dollars, you think they're going to still build buildings? No, they're going to shut everything down. And by the way, you should hope that that doesn't happen. And the reason why is because that would mean there would be a major economic downturn in the city. No, you have to go on out there and put rules in place that make sure you protect the renters. And, you know, it would be one thing, too, if he wasn't just every time there is a homeless encampment, it seems like they have to blow in the the bulldozers and the cops. And act like they're doing, you know, good work. Mayor Fry, I'm not a member. I'm not a resident of the city of Minneapolis. I'm not. Hence, I've not really chimed in too much on the the con, the, uh, how you're perceived. But, dude, you are doing so much wrong on this. It's not funny. And... Uh, It'd be one thing to say, hey, I'm we're going to have this one company build in this high-end complex, but I've got this other company that's going to get some grants and some you know, a tax break. God forbid we give a tax break to anyone but a freaking sports team in this town. And we're going to use that. We're going to give them tax breaks, and they're going to build lower-income housing that's meant for people that can only afford $1,000 to $2,000 a month in rent. Maybe we should start being doing that, but... I don't see anything here outside of, well, we're just going to let them build, 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 charge as much as they want, and on a theory pushed by the developers that the prices will eventually go down. This is me not holding my breath. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Final thing today, I I wanted to chime in a little bit on the new enforcement of fares on the bus or the Metro Transit on the trains. And by the way, there was someone made a post today that said the fare enforcers got on the train with a police officer and they said, here's the deal. We're going to check everyone's fare. If you don't have a ticket, you can get off right now. We're not going to get you. And apparently, like, seven people got off the train and did not get a ticket. So I thought that was a pretty nice deal. But I have no problem with them enforcing this. And for this reason, okay, I don't look at fair enforcement as harassing, as a crime control issue. I don't look at it as harassing homeless people. I don't, I don't look at it as regards to, you know, tolerating drug use on this. I, I don't look at it as, is, is, or stigmatizing drug use in a case. I look at it as the entire concept of the light rail line was passed that part of their funds would be paid for via fares. And if you've got a situation where the fares aren't being enforced and people are not buying tickets, well, that's not going to work. That's what That was the entire idea, is that people will pay to ride the trains. And that will cover some of the expenses, some of the, the paychecks, some of the maintenance. That's the concept. And a lot of people do. I mean, a lot, most people do pay the fares. But it's this kind of slashback. I've, I've seen this element of, oh, well, Matt, 
now that we're here, it should be free. Okay, first of all, I want to make sure you understand something. If you do this, if you try to do an end around and turn around and turn all the mass transit free, you're never going to see more mass transit built. It will immediately, even the moderate Democrats will get off board on this because you're trying to do an end around on the backside of this. You're trying to basically say, oh, we're going to make this a societal change that even though that when we approve this, we made part of this was that people would pay fares to get on this. We're going to make it free. And no, you're never going to build it. And I've, I've already gone around with a few people who have made the idea. It's like, well, but so what's the big deal? So, so that we have, you know, we, should we really be, you know, tormenting people or a homeless who are just trying to warm up on the, on the train or, you know, you know, if a person's addicted to drugs and they're just trying to, you know, get a place. Okay. No, that's not a good use of the freaking train. And no, you shouldn't just allow people to ride back and forth all day long in a train without paying because it makes you, you know, it, it, it's one way to deal with it. I think it'd be, I mean, I'm going to be blunt. I think it'd be far more cost effective to just say, we want to pay for a bunch of buses that will be buses for, for when it's cold for homeless people to get on the bus and we'll just drive around the city and they can stay in the bus. It will be far more cost effective to do something like that than to basically turn over the entire light rail system over to basically as a, you know, a, a homeless shelter for the day. I mean, you just it's 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 a complete way. There's a lot of money that's been put into the light rail lines. It's not meant and designed to be to be a homeless and you know um, respite area for the entire day. It's just not. So I mean, if you want to do something like this, well, I mean, I would suggest finding someone that would give you some buses and allow people to that if they want to you know be homeless and they're looking for a respite. I'm presuming you're not saying you want to drive buses around so people can just go and use drugs on the buses in in, in a safe and secure environment. I, I'm not. I'm. I, maybe you are. Homelessness, like I said in the last segment, this is a housing issue. But we shouldn't, because we want to give ourselves some sort of gold star check mark, go on out there and say, well, even though this is not designed for for a daytime homeless respite area, we should make it so much. The regular commuters won't mind. Now, the regular commuters won't be there. As you've seen, if things get out of control on these trains, there's a tendency of people not wanting to get on the trains. And then it's only a matter of time before the whole system is shut down. And that's part of the problem. And we're back to square one. So I'm not saying homelessness is not a problem. But once again, the entire concept of the light rail line was to build it and they, people would pay fares and that would offset its cost. I don't have any problem with people going on there and making sure people have paid for tickets. I have zero problem. Native Roots Radio is up next. Have a good one. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya.